Welcome to Spatulas and Speculations. I am your host. Doesn't sound right, but I'm not a, I don't have my master's degree or anything, and I'm not really a teacher, but can I be your professor? Can I be your professor? Your unofficial professor? Hi, I'm Professor Lily, or as you may more commonly know me as a happy hermit on TikTok and on Instagram. You know, the crazy lady with the whiteboard and the spatula, that's me, and this is my podcast. Somebody thought it was a great idea to give me a microphone an unlimited amount of time to talk about my hyperfixation. Today is so fun because it's our first episode in the series SJM 101, which is an expansion of the TikTok series, but in far more depth and a little bit like slowed down, broken down. We're also going to be talking about things that I probably won't be talking about on my TikTok because I just don't have time to talk about on my TikTok. In this series, SJM 101, we will spend the next forever, I don't know, I I keep getting ideas and ideas for new episodes so I don't really see an end to when this is going to happen and by the time I do run out of things, I'm sure the next book will be out. So, but we're going to spend a a couple, an hour each week, most likely an hour or a little less than an hour, each week going on a literary analysis adventure on the SJM universe where we will do deep canonic character deep dives, learn about the SJM history and lore, and do spiraling theories and so much more. Uh, When I say that we're going to go into deep deep knowledge of everything, I I seriously mean it. By the end of this podcast, we will all be able to get Sarah J. Mass diplomas. Like, we're going to know everything so that when the next books come out, or just in general, not that you'll not be surprised but what what happens but you'll have a deep understanding of the inner workings of the SJM world like we're going to be talking about lands powers you know ward marks we're going to have a whole episode dedicated to ward marks we're going to go over the history and lore the religions the gods just everything we're going to pick apart pull apart and just get a really deep understanding for the world that Sarah has created now before we go any further I just need to make a disclaimer. One, I don't speak for Sarah or Bloomsbury. To my knowledge, they don't know that I exist. And two, I know. I pronounce everything wrong. I get called out on it quite often. I am trying to fix this. So if I stumble a little bit, that's just have grace for me. Also, when I'm recording, sometimes I have to re-record things a number of times and I might start to get like a mush mouth. So if that happens, just have a little grace for me. If any of this bothers you, especially my pronunciation, which I know it does bother uh, quite a lot of people, just DM me, let me know and say, hey, I love theories, but following you is a little bit hard. Do you have other people? And I can give you some really great recommendations to other SJM theorists who I trust impeccably. Now, with that out of the way, we also need to have the spoiler warning. If you haven't read all of the SJM books, and I'm really meaning all of the SJM books, even to this first episode, we'll be talking about A Court of Silver Flames, we'll be talking about Hosab, and we'll be talking about Kingdom of Ash. So if you haven't read all of the books by Sarah J. Mass, save this podcast, follow me on my socials, and come back and join the class when you've finished all of the reading material. I, I struggled on where to start with this podcast, and I decided to do my very first theory that I ever posted on TikTok, and, and to go deeper, for a multiple reasons. One, it's, you know, 
the first step that I took there and this will be my first step here and secondly it's gonna give you a good example of how I'm gonna work things how I mean I, I get pretty crazy but like this is a good way to be like okay this is how her theories work this is how she gets her theories and then also this particular theory in this particular scene is a really good example of how hard Sarah has worked f for the past 10 years to build this multiverse to build this crossover and we can see it in Akamath we can see it in Akamath and it and it blows my mind so without further ado I am going to, in layman's term, tell you what my theory is, and then I'm going to read you all of my evidence in chronological order for the most part, and I'm going to break down each text after I read it so you can see how my theory came to form, and then after we're going to pull all of this information together and get a little bit of background information to tie it all together. So there's a little bit, there's the core theory, and then we have supporting evidence around it. So let's just get into it. So here's the theory. I think that Starfall is actually the souls that the Underking is ushering through the Dead Gate to become food to the Asteri, First Light Energy, and all that stuff. And we can see that because, one, Reese actually says this, but I'm going to pad his information with more information. And two, through Kingdom of Ash and through um, Aelin when she falls through the multiverse. So without further ado, I invite you enthusiastically to turn with me to a court of Mist and Fury, chapter 43, and this is in a conversation between Amran and Farah, and this is the first time we ever hear the, the term Starfall ever, and is like, why aren't we going to Illyria to wait for the human queens, and Amran says this, because Starfall is tomorrow night, the first we've had together in 50 years, Reese is expected to be there amongst his people. What is Starfall? Amran's eyes twinkled. Outside of these borders, the rest of the world celebrates tomorrow as Ninzir, the day of seeds and flowers. I almost flinched at that. I hadn't realized how much time had passed since I had come here. But Starfall, Amran said, only at the night court can you witness it. Only within this territory is Starfall celebrated in lieu of Ninzir's revelry. The rest, and the why of it, you'll find out. It's better left a surprise. Well, that explains why people had seemed already be preparing for a celebration of sorts. High fae and fairies hustling home with arms full of vibrant wildflower bouquets and streamers and food. The streets were being swept and washed, storefronts patched up with quick, skilled hands. In this little section, we learn that Starfall can only be seen in the Night Court, so that would mean that Illyria, Hewen City, and Valaris all fall in this territory. And it's also the same time as Ninzir, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about Ninzir in at the very end, at the end of this. So we're gonna move into the next chapter, 44, and this is the actual Starfall Night. I'm going to read almost the entire chapter basically because, as you'll find, people like to use this term, the SJ, the SJM effect, and they mostly say that like, oh, a book is good but it has no plot. I actually I want to to rebrand the SJM effect and actually say that. Sarah hides her plot very, very well in really deep romantic encounters. She kind of likes to do this like misdirect thing, and you'll see it very often in, in all of her works, where something majorly important to the SJM universe as a whole is kind of slipped in under the radar and is buried on top of these really heavily romantic scenes. 
and this is no exception. So this is the Starfall Night. This is when Reese and Farah really have this like open and honest moment, very romantic feel. They kind of start taking these steps together of like that they they really like love and like each other, all that stuff. But while that's happening, we're getting this huge plot moment that is like important. And yes, I am going to ruin Starfall for you, and I apologize for that because really it's kind of gross, but. <laughs> let's get into it. So before I start reading the entire section, I just want to read two little sentences that happen before Reese and Farrah get into it. And the first is when Cassian is flying her to the party and she says this, below us, every lingering light winked out. There was no moon, no music flittered through the streets, silence as if it were waiting for something. So I just want to point out that there there is no moon and the moon is like a pretty big deal to the witches and I know that like astrology new moon means like the beginning of a new cycle all that stuff and we're going to get into the beginning of a new cycle later but I just want you to keep that in your mind there is no moon during starfall and then the next little chunk I want to read to you is when Farrah first gets to the party and she's talking with more and they're talking about Amran and more says this. You're lucky Amran is hiding in her little attic. She'd probably steal it right off of you, her dress. The vain Drake. She won't take time off from her decoding? Yes and no. Something about Starfall disturbs her. She claims, who knows? She probably does it to be contradictory. <sighs> the red flags. The red, the, the creature from another world is disturbed by something and none of you are like, maybe we should do a little digging. Maybe we shouldn't be throwing a party. I, nah. Now let's read the the whole thing. So this is a little further down. This is when Reese and Farah finally start talking. And Farah goes, Will you please tell me what this gathering is about? Rhysand stepped up behind me, snorting as he said into my ear, Look up. Indeed, as I did, the crowd hushed. No speech for your guests, I murmured. Easy. I just wanted it to be easy between us again. Tonight's not about me, though my presence is appreciated and noted, he said. Tonight is about that, he pointed. A star vaulted across the sky, brighter and closer than any I'd seen before. The crowd in the city below cheered, raising their glasses, as it passed right overhead, and only when it had disappeared over the curve of the horizon did they drink deeply. I leaned back a step into Reese and quickly stepped away, out of his heat and power and scent. We'd done enough damage in a similar position in the Court of Nightmares. Another star vaulted across the sky, twirling and twisting over itself as if it were reveling in its own sparkly beauty. It was chased by another and another until a brigade of them were unleashed from the edge of the horizon, like a thousand archers had loosened them from mighty bows. The stars cascaded over us, filling the world with white and blue light. They were like living fireworks. My breath lodged in my throat as the stars kept falling and falling. I had never seen anything so beautiful, and when the sky was full of them, when the stars raced and danced and flowed across the world, the music began. Wherever they were, people began dancing. Now a little further down. Reese led me to a small private balcony jutting from the upper level of the House of Wind, on the patios below. The music still played, the people still danced, the stars wheeled by, close and swift. He let go as I took a seat on the balcony rail, and I immediately decided against it as I beheld the drop, and backed away a healthy step. Reese chuckled. If you fell, you know, I'd bother to save you before you hit the ground. 
but not until I was close to death. Maybe. I leaned a hand against the rail, peering at the stars whizzing past. As punishment for what I said to you? I said some horrible things, too, he murmured. I didn't mean it, I blurted. I meant it more about myself than you, and I'm sorry. He watched the stars for a moment before he replied. You were right, though. I stayed away because you were right. Though I am glad to hear my absence felt like a punishment. I snorted, but was grateful for the humor, for the way he had always been able to amuse me. Any news with the orb or the queens? Not yet. We're waiting them to design to reply. We were silent again, and I studied the stars. They're not... They're not stars at all. No. Reese came up beside me on, at the rail. Our ancestors thought they were, but they're just spirits on a yearly migration somewhere. Why they pick this day to appear, no one knows. I felt his eyes upon me and tore my gaze from the shooting stars. Light and shadow passed over his face. The cheers of music and the city far, far below were barely audible over the crowd gathered at the house. There must be hundreds of them, I managed to say, dragging my stare back to the stars, whizzing past. Thousands, he said, and they'll keep coming until dawn. Or I hope they will. There were less and less of them the last time I witnessed Starfall, before Amarantha had locked him away. What's happening to them? I looked in time to see him shrug. Something twanged in my chest. I wish I knew, but they keep coming back despite it. Why? Why does anything cling to something? Maybe they love wherever they're going so much that it's worth it. Maybe they'll keep coming back until there's only one star left, and maybe that one star will make this trip forever out of the hope that one day, if it keeps coming back often enough, another star will find it again. I frowned at the wine in my hand. That's a very sad thought. Indeed, Reese rested his forearms on the balcony edge, close enough for my fingers to touch if I dared. A calm, full silence enveloped us. Too many words. I still had too many words in me. I don't know how much time passed, but it must have been a while, because when he spoke again, I jolted. Every year that I was under the mountains and Starfall came around, Amarantha made sure that I serviced her the entire night. Starfall is no secret even to the outsiders. Even the night court crawls out of Hewan City to look up at the sky, so she knew. She knew what it meant to me. I stopped hearing the celebration around us. I'm sorry. It was all I could offer. I got through it by reminding myself that my friends were safe, that Valaris was safe, and nothing else mattered, so as long as I had that, she could use my body however she wanted, and I didn't care. So why aren't you down there with them, I asked even as I tucked that horror of what had been done to him into my heart. They don't know what she did to me on Starfall. I don't want it to ruin their night. I don't think it would. They'd be happy if you let them shoulder the burden. The same way you rely on others to help you with your own troubles. We stared at each other, close enough to share a breath, and maybe all those words bottled up in me. Maybe I didn't need them right now. My fingers grazed his, warm and sturdy, patient, as if waiting to see what else I might do. Maybe it was the wine, but I stroked a finger down his, and as I turned to him more fully, something blinding and twinkling slammed into my face. I reeled back, crying out as I bent over, shielding my face against the light that I could still see against my shut eyes. Reese let out a startled laugh. A laugh. 
and when I realized that my eyes hadn't been singed out of their sockets, I whirled on him. I could have been blinded, I hissed and shoving him. He took a look at my face and burst out laughing again. Real laughter, open and delighted and lovely. I wiped at my face, and when I pulled my hand down, I gaped. Pale green light, like drops of paint, glowed in flecks on my hand. Splattered star spirit. I didn't know if I should be horrified, or amused, or disgusted. And when I went to rub it off, Reese caught my hands. Don't, he said, still laughing. It looks like your freckles are glowing. My nostrils flared, and I went to shove him again, not caring if my new strength knocked him off the balcony. He could summon wings. He could deal with it. He sidestepped me, veering towards the balcony rail, but not fast enough to avoid the careening star that collided with the side of his face. He leapt back with a curse. I laughed, the sound rasping out of me. Not a chuckle or a snort, but a cackling laugh. And I laughed again and again as he lowered his hands from his eyes. The entire left side of his face had been hit like heavenly war paint. That's what it looked like. And I could see why he didn't want me to wipe mine away. Reese was examining his hands, covered in the dust. I stepped toward him, peering at the way it glowed and glittered. He went still as death as I took one of his hands in my own and traced a star shape on the top of his palms, playing with the glimmer and shadows until it looked like one of the stars that had hit us. His fingers tightened on mine, and I looked up. He was smiling at me and looked so unhigh lord like with the glowing dust on the side of his face that I grinned back. I hadn't even realized what I had done until his own smile faded, and his mouth parted slightly. Smile again, he whispered. I hadn't smiled for him, ever, or laughed. Under the mountain, I had never grinned, never chuckled, and afterwards, this male before me, my friend, for all that he had done, I had never given him either even when I had just, I had just painted something on him, for him, I'd paint it again. <sighs> even reading that, I got like, I got, ugh, that moment between them. Anyways, I'm going to ruin it. Going back to the very beginning, that something disturbed Amran. Amran who knew about the Daglin and the Asteri, and yet no one no one asks her any questions and she doesn't give any answers and drives me absolutely nuts as you will find. So these are there these things are brighter than normal stars. They their colors are green, blues, white, they're light, they're glowing, and they go over the curve of the horizon. I, I don't I can't show you the map, but when you look at the way that it, it would go, it it would basically be going from Hewen City to the prison in an arcing circle. Uh, it says that they were vaulted across the sky as if like a, a thousand archers had loosened them from mighty bows, and my mind immediately goes to Dina Luna, to the Wild Hunt, just that those bows and arrow, like some that terminology itches something inside of my brain that we'll probably need to dissect way later, but I just wanted to point out that that is something that I am like, Ugh! We get the confirmation, though, that they are not stars, they really are souls, so as I was pointing out, this theory is going to be somewhat easy to follow because Reese says it himself, they are, they are literally souls, and that there are less and less of them each year. I actually have an answer for Reese on this one, but we'll get into that later. Farah is almost blinded, Bryce 
like I, my I read that and I'm like oh, Bryce 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 blinding Bryce blinding light Bryce and then the last thing I just want to point out before we um, move on to the next uh, stuff the the evidence for this theory is that Farah paints for the first time and she point, paints a star. Now, this is headcanon. This will never, I don't think this will ever be confirmed in any kind of way, but I guarantee you that in Sarah's mind, when Farah was painting a star, it was eight-pointed. It was an eight-pointed star. That Something foreshadowy, something here that Farah paints for the first time around this moment. This It just it just means something. The next time we see Starfall is in A Court of Silver Flames, chapter 61, and this is Nesta's Starfall, and I'm just going to read two tiny little sentences from that just to, you know, again, to show what these star, star souls look like. She staggered into the veranda at the top of the house and gaped at the stars raining across the bowl of the sky. They zoomed by so close some sparkled against the stones, leaving glowing dust in their wake. And then a little further down, she says, she stuck out a hand over the railing, grazing a star as it shot past. Her fingers came away, glowing with blue and green dust. This is the scene that Nesta is welcomed back to the night court. So again, this the starfall seems to be around like these really important like moments. This is the first time Vera paints. It's the first time that, or it's when Nesta gets brought back to the night court. But I said that, you know, these are souls from the bone quarter in Crescent City. And now I'm going to read to you and prove it to you. So we're going to move to Crescent City. We're going to go into House of Sky and Breath, chapter 29, and this is when Bryce and Hunt are in the Bone Quarter talking with the Under King, but before I get to the conversation between the Under King and him, I'm going to read just, like, this little moment so you kind of get the ambiance, what's around them, all that stuff, because it's, everything is important. Everything is everything, and everything is important, and this is in Hunt's perspective. Dry ground lay beyond, mist and grayness and silence marble and granite obelisks rose like thick spears many inscribed but not with names with just strange symbols grave markers or something else hunt scanned the gloom ears straining for any hint of reapers of the ruler they sought for any hint of emil or sophie but not one footprint marked the ground not one scent lingered in the mist the thought of a kid hiding out here of any being dwelling here fuck. Bryce whispered, a voice thick. It's supposed to be green. I saw a land of green and sunlight. Hunt lifted a brow, but her eyes, now a flat yellow, searched the mist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm reading this. I'm, I'm sorry. Her, Bryce's eyes are what color? Ye yellow? Um, like the Val King eyes? Like, Manon's oars? Are you trying to tell me that Bryce Quinlan, her eyes turn a flat yellow when the shine is off of them? Are you trying to tell me that Bryce Quinlan has foul king eyes? <sighs> Sorry, super, super, super off track, but I... Hosab feels like a fever dream, so anytime I, like, read sections out of it, uh, I just feel like I'm picking out new things, so that might happen a little often when I read to you guys. Anyways, a little further down, 
a little further down. Oh, I am nothing if not chaos. A little further down, Bryce halted suddenly between two black obelisks, each engraved with a different array of those odd symbols. The obelisks and a dozen more beyond them flanked what seemed to be a central walkway stretching into the mist. Now let's get into the actual conversation between the Underking, Bryce, and Hunt. Fire sprites do not come to the Bone Quarter. The lowers are of no use. Hunt arched a brow. No use for what? The Underking smiled again, perhaps a shade ruefully. Comforting lies, remember? Life is a beautiful ring of growth and decay, the Underking said, the words echoing through the sleeping city around them. No part left to waste. What we receive upon birth, we give back in death. What is granted to you mortals in the eternal lands is merely another step in the cycle, a waypoint along your journey towards the void. Hunt growled. Let me guess, you hail from hell too? I hail from a place between stars, a place that has no name and never shall. But I know of the void the princes of hell worship. It birthed me too. The star in the center of Bryce's chest flared. The underking smiled, his horrific face turned ravenous. I beheld your light across the river that day. Had I only known when you first came to me, things might have been quite different. Hunt's lightning surged, but he reined it in. What do you want with her? What I want from all souls who pass here. What I give back to the dead gate, to all of Midgard. Energy. Life. Power. You did not give your power to the Elysian system. You made the drop outside of it. Thus, you still possess some first light. Raw, Nutrius first light. Nutrius, Bryce said. The Underking waved a bony hand. Can you blame me for sampling the goods as they pass through the dead gate? Hunt's mouth dried up. You... You feed on the souls of the dead? Only those who are worthy, who have enough energy. There is no judgment but that, whether a soul possesses enough residual power to make a hearty meal, both for myself and the dead gate. As their souls pass through the dead gate, I'd take a bite or two. Hunt cringed inwardly. Maybe he had been too hastily in deeming the being before him not evil. The Ender King went on. The rituals were all invented by you, your ancestors, to endure the horror of the offering. But Danica was here. She answered me, Bryce's voice broke. She was here, she and all the other newly dead from the past several centuries, just long enough that their living descendants and loved ones either forget or don't come asking. They dwell here until then in relative comfort unless they make themselves a nuisance and I decide to send them into the gate sooner. But when the dead are forgotten and their names are no longer whispered on the wind, then they are herded through the gate and become first light, or second light, as it is called when the power comes from the dead, ashes to ashes and all that. The sleeping city is a lie, he asked. His mother's face flashed before him. A comforting one, as I have said, the underking's voice again became sorrowful. One for your benefit. And the Asteri know about this, Hunt demanded. I would never presume to claim what the Holy Ones know or don't know. Okay. When I break down these sections or when I read sections, I'm just going to give you kind of all of my thoughts. So if I see something, I'm just going to give you little comments. So that way, when I bring something up again later, you're going to be like, oh yeah, Lily says, thinks this. I think that mist is a product of Valg influence. So anytime that I see mist, I immediately think there is a Valg present. 
there is Valg here. So we see that in the Ord, we see that at the prison, we see that here in the Underking. So anytime you see mist, immediately think Valg when you're talking theory with me, because that's just something I truly believe. Again, so the next thing I saw was the, um, the strange symbols, ward marks, uh, only those with magic go to the eternal lands. Um, is this a is this a realm? Is this a place? Are we going to see this? So the next thing that I, I see and I question is that he says that everyone goes to the void even after being eaten. So to make this theory a little bit more comforting and to maybe make what happens to these people a little bit more comforting is that maybe it's not necessary. Like maybe there's two parts to it, that there's like your, your magic and your first light and all that. And then there's like your actual soul. And like, I, I, I we're, I don't really want to get into like a religious after death debate, but he does say that everyone goes to the void. The void is what is is a capital V void. So this is a realm. This is where the princes of hell came from their father. So do they actually get to go there? So even after they've de been dead, does that give us hope for Danica and, and Alina who were disappeared into nothing? That's just something I want you to just keep in your back of your mind. So the dead go back to the city. They go back to the Asteri. And then the next thing is, so the next thing it, that I see is that they're, so they, we learn that they go through this gate, they go through the dead gate, and then are somehow portaled to the Asiri and to the, um, al al the system, the electrical system that they have here. So we're going to actually read next the chapter about the Asiri and how they get their first light and all that stuff. This is House of Sky and Breath, chapter 71. This is when Bryce is in the Asteri Palace and she's learning the full truth. So she learned half the truth from the Underking. Now she's going to be learning the full truth. So this is in her perspective. Bryce began to creep down the stairs, her black utility boots nearly silent against the quartz steps. She saw no one, heard no one. Her heart raced as she could have sworn the veins of first light in the quartz throbbed each beat as if an answer. Bryce halted after a turn in the stairs and assessed the long hallway ahead. When it was revealed no guards, she stepped into it. There were no doors, only this hallway, perhaps 70 feet long and 15 feet wide, likely 14 feet to be a multiple of seven, the holy number. Bryce scanned the hall. The only thing in it was a set of crystal pipes shooting upward toward the ceilings with plaques beneath them. A small black screen beside the plaque, seven pipes, the crystal floor glowed at her feet as she approached the nearest plaque. Hesperus, the evening star. Brows raising, Bryce strode to the next pipe in plaque. Polaris, the north star. Plaque after plaque, pipe after pipe, Bryce read the individual names of each asteri. Esphorus, Octorius, Ostrus. She nearly tripped at the penultimate. Sirius, the asteri the prince of the pit had devoured. She knew what the last plaque would say before she reached it. Regulus. The bright hand. What the hell was this place? This is what Danica had felt was important enough for Sophie Renstadt to risk her life for? What the Asteri had wanted to contain so badly, they hunted Sophie down to preserve the secret. The crystal at her feet flared, and Bryce had nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, as first light, pure and iridescent, ruptured. She squeezed her eyes shut, dropping to a crouch, but nothing happened. At least, not to her. The first light faded enough that Bryce cracked open her eyes to see it shooting up six pipes. The little black screen beside each plaque flared to life and filled with readings. Only Sirius's pipe remained unlit, out of commission. 
She went rigid as she read the bright hand screen. Regulus. Power level 65. She rolled to the next plaque. The screen beside it said, Austrius. Power level 76. Holy gods, Bryce whispered. The Asteri fed on first light. The Asteri needed first light. She looked at her feet where the light flowed in veins through the crystal before funneling into the pipes. The quartz, a conduit of power. <clears throat> Dorian, Dorian, I'm just like, whoo, I just realized, okay, I just realized something. Exactly, sorry, exactly like the gates in Crescent City. They built their entire palace out of it to fuel and harness the first light that poured in. She studied Fury's rough map of the palace layout. This area was seven levels below the throne room, where the Asteri sat on crystal thrones. Did those thrones fill them with power in plain sight? They fueled up like batteries, sucking in this first light? Naza constricted her throat. All the drops people made, the second light the dead handed over, all the power of the people of Midgard, the power the people gave them? This was gobbled up by the Asteri and used against its citizens to control them. Even the Vanir rebels who were killed fighting had their souls fed to the very beasts who they were trying to overthrow. They were all just food to the Asteri, a never-ending supply of power. Bryce began shaking, the veins of light wending beneath her feet, glowing and vibrant. She traced them down as far as she could see them through the clear stone to a brilliant shining mass, a core of first light, powering the entire palace and the monsters that ruled it. So I, I screamed out Dorian's name because I, I, you know, like I said, reading these scenes, I'm, I'm picking up new things. And I, I immediately am thinking about that, those scenes in Air of Fire when Kale and Dorian were messing around with crystals. And I think that that particular scene is going to come back. So that was, that was just an interesting little note. But it glowed, it throbbed, iridescent, vibrant light, very similar to how they describe the souls at Starfall. It almost blinds Bryce just like Pharaoh was almost blinded at Starfall and we know that the Asteri have a gate in their palace. Okay so those are the three big main texts and now I'm going to start reading um, shorter little chunks that really solidify this for me and the first one I'm going to read is actually going to answer a question for Reese which I do feel you know, Reese is always shutting down people whenever they're trying to tell history or lore or ask questions, and I, I get to answer one of Reese's questions, and he said he doesn't know why there were less and less each year, and I do. In House of Earth and Blood, chapter 14, the Autumn King and Rune are talking about the horn, and he says this, the Fae have long been fading, our magic wanes with each generation like watered-down wine. He frowned at Rune. The first starborn prince could blind an enemy with a flash of his starlight, and you can barely summon a sparkle for an instant. So the reason why there is less and less each year is because there are less and less magical users. There are less people who get to go to the Eternal Lands to wait to be herded through the Dead Gate. Oh, Sarah! Sarah, she's so cool. She's so smart. I love everything about it. Okay, but Lillian, is this really the soul? Like, is this really the soul? Okay, in House of Earth and Blood, chapter six, Bryce is talking about drop parties and first light, and she says this. 
It was only upon making the ascent and reaching that threshold back to life, brimming with new power, that immortality that was attained, the aging process slowed to a glacial drip, and the body rendered near indestructible, as it was bathed in all that ensuing first light, so bright that it could blind the naked eye. And at the end of it, when the drop center sleek energy panels had siphoned off that first light, all and any of them were left with to mark the occasion was a mere pinprick of the light in a bottle, a pretty souvenir. These days, with drop parties like this one, all the rage, the newly immortal often use their allotment of their own first light to make party favors to hand out to their friends. Bryce planned for glow sticks and keychains that said, kiss my sparkly ass. Danica had just wanted shot glasses. So, again, we get that blinding, that little comment about things, like, them being blinded just like Vera and just like Bryce. Um, and then it's said that they make pretty sparkly, glowy souvenirs, which is the way that all of the, whenever someone touches that stardust or those soul dust, it's pretty sparkly, glowy, just like... Uh, just like what they're saying. So the biggest question is going to be that I, I know and, and I and I will answer for you is how do souls go from Midgard or whatever realm that they're in, the Midgard souls, how are they going from Midgard to the Assyria but we're seeing them in the night court? Well, I can answer that for you. And the answer is gates. Prove this to you by reading um, Kingdom of Ash chapter 98 and 99. I'm just going to smush them between because it, it's the ending chunk of 98 and then it flows right into 99. So I'm just going to read them as if they're one chapter, but you can just flip with me. And it's when Aelin goes through the gate. And uh, reading this scene is really hard for me because I like, it's just that moment of like, all of these moments that I'm reading are like, I think it's just anything I read from SJM. So, this is in Aelin's perspective. Behind her, the archway slowly sealed. The odds were slimmed. The odds were insurmountable. She had not been destined to escape this, to reach this point and still be breathing. Aelin's hand drifted to her heart and rested there. It is the strength of this that all that matters, her mother had said long ago. Wherever you go, Aelin, no matter how far, this will lead you home. No matter where she was, no matter how far, even if it took her beyond all known worlds. Aelin's fingers curled, palm pressing into the pounding heart beneath. This will lead you home. The archway to Aurelia inched close. World walker, wayfinder. Others had done it before, and she would find a way too. A way home. No longer the queen who was promised, but the queen who walked between worlds. She would not go quietly. She was not afraid. So Aelin ripped out her power, ripped out a chunk of what Mala had given her, a force to level a world, and flung it towards the lock. The final bit. The last bit. And then Aelin leapt through the gate. She was falling and being thrown. The word gate sealed behind her, and yet she was not home. As it closed, all the worlds overlapped, and she fell through them, one after another after another. Worlds of water, worlds of ice, worlds of darkness, she slammed through them faster than a shooting star, faster than light. Home, she had to find home. Worlds of light, worlds of towers that stretched to the skies, worlds of silence. So many, there were so many worlds, all of them miraculous, all of them so precious and perfect that even as she fell through them, her heart broke to see them home, the way home. She fumbled for the tether, the bond in her soul, inked into her flesh, come back to me. 
Aelin plunged through world after world after world too fast. She would hit her own world too fast and miss it completely, but she could not slow, could not stop. Tumbling and flipping over herself, she passed through them one by one by one by one by one. It is the strength of this that matters. Wherever you go, Aelin, no matter how far, this will lead you home. Aelin roared, a spark of self flashing through the sky. A tethered grew stronger, tighter, reeling her in too fast. She had to slow. She plummeted into the last of herself, into what remained, grappling for any sort of power to slow her racing. She passed through a world where a great city had been built along the curve of a river, the buildings impossibly tall and glimmering with lights. She passed through a world of rain and green and wind roaring she tried to slow she passed through a world of oceans with no land to be seen close home was so close she could nearly smell the pine and snow if she missed it if she passed it by she passed through a world of snow-capped mountains under shining stars passed over one of these mountains where a winged male stood beside a heavily pregnant female gazing at the very stars Fay, they were fay, but not of her world. She flung out a hand as if she might signal them, as if they might somehow help her when she was nothing but an invisible speck of power. The winged male, beautiful beyond reason, snapped his head towards her as she arced across his starry sky. He lifted a hand as if in greeting, a blast of dark power like a gentle summer's night, slammed into her, not to attack but to slow her down, a wall, a shield, that she tore and plunged through, but it, it slowed her. That winged male's power slowed her just enough. Aelin vanished from his world without a whisper, and there it was. Whoo! Okay, so Aelin goes from a gate, and we're going to talk about how gates and rifts and, uh, differ and how the 26 realms are different than planets that is a never-ending question but we're going to go in way deeper later a few episodes from now but she goes so she goes from world to world like like overlapping so you go from one gate and you kind of like fall through all the other gates basically is how i'm seeing this she said she tumbled well first she says that um she was like a shooting star so we get that star reference and then she says she was tumbling and flipping over herself just like the way that Farah had described them like twisting twisting and dance like and twirling around themselves just the like the way Aelin describes her herself moving so she says that she arced across his sky so this would be similar wording to the way that the stars are described to be moving arcing across the sky so she's moving just like the souls of starfall would she's in the exact same place as the the star starfall souls are which really shouldn't be possible because we know that the night court is so heavily warded valaris is very heavily warded and we have to remember that aelin is not in her physical body this is not her physical form um she's this is her the soul of her the power of her being thrown through these gates and through these worlds now you're like okay but we see Aelin and Akasif, yes? We do. And, and, and this is when timeline-y stuff gets kind of confusing. Um, but in Akasif chapter 62, we do see Aelin fall. And 
Nesta says this. So the chapter right before it was Nesta's Starfall chapter. And then right after we get this chapter. So this, the timeline of this is weird, but the timeline of it really doesn't necessarily matter for this theory, but it does matter. The timeline of it matters, does matter as a whole. So it is kind of confusing, but we do see Aelin and this is how Nesta describes it. Spring dawned on Valaris. Nesta welcomed the sun into her bones, her heart, letting it warm her. They had made it through the winter, with no movement from Breelin or Byron, no armies unleashing, but Cassian warned that many armies did not attack in the winter, and Breelin might have been amassing them in secret. Azrael was forbidden from getting within a few miles of her, thanks to the threat of the crown, and any reports had to be verified by multiple sources. In short, they knew nothing, and could only wait. The mood hadn't been helped by a rare red star blasting across the sky one day. An ill omen. Nesta had heard the priestesses murmuring. Cassian reported that even Reese had been rattled by it, seeming unusually contemplative afterward. The timeline of it is, is really weird. It happened right after the Starfall chapter, but then it just says one day. It kind of sounds like like Nesta's just giving a really random recap of everything that we kind of already know. So this, this beginning of this chapter is really wonky for me. Just, it kind of feels a little clunky to me just because like she could have easily said during Starfall, the day of Starfall, but she doesn't. She just says one day. And then it was red because she was tossing, like the reason why we see that it was red and she's not the same color as the other stars is because she was actively throwing out her power, whereas the other souls aren't. So that's just a little caveat. So let's talk about portals and gates in Perithian. They do exist. The Court of Nightmares, its entrance is black st is is a black stone gate basically, and Farrah calls them the gates of eternity, or she that's what she would name them. And they were in this endless cycle, and this term cycle keeps coming up. And I think it's interesting that it it comes up in this moment. We also have the prison bone gates. Regulus says that there are access points in this world to there the world that Thea and her girls found a way to shut. We know that the the Dust Court is in is part of the Night Court now, and we're going to talk about that um, next week, all of that next week. So I'm just going to say that now the Dust Court is a part of the Night Court, so that's kind of why we can see them in Valaris in the Night Court and not really anywhere else. And the Asteri have a gate that Bryce ends up going through, and she goes to Perithian from there. So it, it kind of seems... I mean, yes, Bryce gets pulled and whatever, but it goes from the Asteri's place to Perithian. So we see the souls go through Perithian and then they end up at the Asteri's kind of thing. Now let's talk about the stuff around Starfall. Just this is padding to all of this and kind of, this is, this is hilarious actually. So earlier when Pharaoh was talking with, when we first get the first mention of Starfall, Amran says that in lieu of Ninzir, they celebrate Starfall. So Ninzir is happening on the exact same day as Starfall. Now, if Ninzir sounds slightly familiar to you, that's because we actually hear it twice earlier. And the first time we hear of it is in Akamath chapter 4, when Farah and Ianthi <coughs> are talking about one of Tam's parties. And she, they say this, or Farah says, I'm fine. I'd already contemplated how pathetic it would be if I had asked her to permanently stay after the wedding, if I revealed that I dreaded her leaving me to this court, these people, until Ninzir, a minor spring holiday to celebrate the end of seeding the fields 
and to pass out the first flower clippings of the season, months and months from now. We see again we see again this little time bit in Akamath chapter 6 when Reese is teaching Vera to read, and he says, at this point, it's about practice, spelling, and more practice. You could be reading novels by Ninzier, and if you keep adding the, to the shields, you might very well keep me out entirely by then. Two, Ninzier. It'd be the first Hamlin and his court would celebrate in nearly 50 years. Amarantha had banded on a whim, along with other small but beloved fey holidays that she had deemed unnecessary. But Ninzier was months and months from now. So, um, it's just a minor spring holiday, the end of seeing the fields and first harvest. So, Ninzier is the harvest and end of cycles. <laughs> it's a sick joke sarah but it's it get it the underking is harvesting the dead people on the day of ninzir the end of seeding the fields and harvesting <laughs> i hope i the fact that this ha like and, and and an end of a cycle we get we keep getting this like cycle talk and then we hear that ninzir is like the end of the seeding cycle and stuff like it if it's not true, that is one hell of a coincidence. One hell of... I, I'm sorry, that's like the dark... Like, that's my kind of joke. That's a sick joke. <laughs> so, the next... Uh, just... Just do we get this tiny little note about um, um, Starfall spirits it, one other time in all of Akatar, And it's in Akamath chapter 60 when Reese's um, giving Farah her ring, and it says this, Reese shuts the door and went to a small box on the desk and then silently handed it to me. My heart thundered as I opened the lid. The star sapphire gleamed in the candlelight as if it were one of the starfall spirits trapped in stone. Your mother's ring? So again, I just wanted to point it out that, like, yes, the, the starfall is souls. We're going to talk about Farah reese's mom's ring way later that's a whole other unhinged theory that we'll get into I don't, I don't even know when but later later but i just wanted to make a note that that it is starfall is mentioned only a very few handfuls of times and this is one of them and it's again equating the stars to souls okay that's all the reading let's pull all of our information all the way together so we get direct confirmation from Reese that it is souls. We get confirmation that the Under King is pushing them through a gate. We see that when you go through a gate between Bryce and um, Fair, uh, Bryce and Aelin, that you go just because you're starting off in one place doesn't mean you just walk through to another necessarily. You have to kind of go through worlds. So they go through the Night Court world, and then we get Nenzir, <laughs> which is. I'm sorry, that's, you know, the reason why I, de I dive so deep is because of little moments like this, little, little things that we, we get that Sarah has left behind for us. So that's the theory of Starfall. That's the layman's term. That's the breakdown. That is the deep dive in all things that have to do around Starfall. The timeline of it gets a little, like, I don't, it doesn't matter when Aelin fell through because I'm just using her example of what it looks like and, and what it's like to go through a gate, but I, the timeline of that is just so wonky and it, and it really throws me off. 
kind of because it would been it would have been so easy just to have Aelin fall on Starfall, but she doesn't, which is probably a good thing because then she might have been herded. Well, I guess it might have been a good thing because if I'm right and Starfall is the souls from the Dead Gate and all that stuff, um, she would have been she could have been swept into the Asteris and then she would have died and that's wow that's really horrible. I'm gonna pretend I never even said that because I just scarred myself. So that's the end of it. Did I convince you? Do you have any questions to bring to the class? You can ask me on any of my social medias. I will try to respond to you. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you had fun. I hope that even if you don't believe me or even if you don't like the theory that it was still fun to, to dissect all this stuff and you'll join me for next class as we talk about Finan, Thea, and Peleus and start the deep dive in the canonic lore of Perithian and Crescent City and start working out what insanity that happened 1,500 years ago. So that's it. That's the end of class. There is no homework. Ha 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 ha. And I will see you next week. Goodbye.